0: To a new way of being, being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations.
1: According to the U.S. State Department, 600,000 to 800,000 people are trafficked across international borders every year, of whom 80% are female and half are children. However, both the international arena and human trafficking for labor, as separate from trafficking for sexual purposes, are too vast for this episode to cover. Between 14,500 and 17,500 people are trafficked into the US each year for commercial sex. Yet, it has been estimated that two-thirds of sex trafficking victims in the United States are US citizens, bringing the numbers of new recruits to estimated 50,000 each year. The average age a teen enters the sex trade in the US is 12 to 14 years. Poverty and a lack of education play major roles in the lives of many women in the sex industry. Many victims are runaway girls who were sexually abused as children. California harbors three of the FBI's 13 highest child sex trafficking areas on the nation, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and San Diego. The National Human Trafficking Hotline receives more calls from Texas than any other state in the U.S. This episode hopes to open a window of understanding and compassion towards the centuries-old phenomenon as it manifests in our contemporary society, where popular travel, cellular phones, and the internet make it easier than ever to reach and groom potential victims. This conversation offers listeners the means to combat the sex trafficking in their own backyard. Valeria Tellez interviews Talia Carner. Novelist Talia Karner is formerly the publisher of Savvy Woman magazine and a lecturer at International Women's Economic Forum. She is a committed supporter of global human rights and has spearheaded projects centered on the subjects of female plight and women's activism. Her five novels have been hailed for exposing society's ills, the latest of which is The Third Daughter, HarperCollins, September 2019. Set in Buenos Aires in the late 1800s, it is the story of a Jewish girl caught in sex trafficking. Talia Karner has given over 300 keynote speeches and presentations about the social issues behind her novels to civic, educational, and religious organizations. Here is the interview
0: with Talia Karner. your own words,
2: who is Stalia corner I am a novelist, a woman, Jewish. I would say those are the three words that would define me the most and best. Right.
0: Great. Before I begin to ask you questions about your book, The Third Daughter and Human Trafficking, I have a few warm-up questions. The first is What is another word for life?
2: Courage, curiosity, and compassion Mm. put together gives a meaning to life. Yeah, beautiful.
0: What inspires you to be a good person, to do good in the world, Talia?
2: My own self-reflection. As I can think about myself, I would like to like myself. And I would think that that's my greatest motivation, is that self-awareness and self-censoring and my own inner values of what's right and what's wrong. Right.
0: What do you think is the world's greatest need? That is the
2: toughest question (laughs) because... It's easy to say to just love humanity, but that's not realistic and it's not possible. As long as there is war and strife and misery around the globe, that will actually will continue because we can put out the fire in one spot and see fire flaring up somewhere else. And maybe it's a way of the universe to somehow keep the population in check as Mm -hmm sarcastic and terrible as that is but yet I personally cannot say that we that I can let it go and say okay that's part of the what's happening in the world so let allow that human suffering to continue Wow, what the world needs can't even say peace because of that reason what do we want to feed our planet with the resources we have? Yes. So in order to do that, we need to forego a lot of this craziness of organic food, for example, because every bite of organic food that I put on in my mouth, I deprive 10 other people of just their first meal of the, and only meal of the day. Wow. So Yes, we cannot afford to feed the entire planet with some well-chosen luxuries.
0: Right. Wow. That is interesting because one of the things that you just mentioned that inspires you to be a good person, and you mentioned self-knowledge, and then uh, the world's greatest need, it might be self-knowledge too. It goes back to the self, knowing ourselves. Do you believe in God? No.
2: Um, why not? It just, I just don't believe in it. It's uh, something I probably stopped believing in his existence when I was about eight, maybe eight years old. Right. And in a way, I've envied over my lifetime, envied people who believe in God because it's so comforting to them to think that there's another entity there, whether it's God, whether it's Jesus, whether it's Buddha, whether it's Mother Earth, whether it's whatever the planet right. somewhere that is sharing their pain or suffers for them or sees them at their glory. And, you know, if I, I, I've, I've encountered a couple of situations where parents, let's say, lost a child yeah. and they say, well, my, they, my child is now with God and they feel somehow good about it or they, they feel comforted. Yeah. I cannot begin to understand the pain of losing a child, but there's no way I could have found comfort anywhere other than just feel that horribly acute pain never easing. Uh, Another thing, I uh, used to dance ballet for many years. And at one point in school was uh, beautiful. I was already an adult, mature woman. There was a beautiful dancer, both physically and her dancing. And I used to like to, when you do it diagonally across the floor, doing those huge gazelle-like leaps, I like to do that. Ahead of her so I could turn and see her coming towards me. Mm-hmm. And there was this glow on her face. And one day I said that to her. I just, I love the way you leap with glow on your face. And she said, it's because Jesus is watching me. Mm. And I said, well, I wish he watched me too. <laughs> <All right.
0: laughs>
2: so I can only say I, mm-hmm. I envy you. Those people who have that, but it's just not there. You can't force belief like that.
0: Right, absolutely.
2: No, the Inquisition tried. There have been so many wars over religion that forced one nation to take over a religion of another Mm. with a threat threat of death. They did kill. I, I just don't get it so true.
0: Do you have any mystical beliefs? No. What do you think is the purpose of life, of the human existence?
2: Uh, to be born, to uh, procreate, and to die. We uh, Are we different from other creatures? I've never given thought to this particular question, but that's <laughs> basically mm. what we do. So now humans have... Mm a lot more faculties than the rest of them. <laughs> yeah. But how is that? does it have a purpose by the fact that we are capable of more knowledge? We haven't even scratched the surface of knowledge. If you can just look at the huge leaps we've done in the last hundred years compared to all human life on Earth, And we look at actually what's ahead of us in the next 100 years, which is going to be growing exponentially. And then the next 1,000 years is beyond even our ability to project because our mind is not there yet, but it will be there 100 years from now to project the next 900 years.
0: It's so fascinating the way you answered that question. What is the difference between us and the rest of the beings on planet
2: Earth? Uh, what is the purpose of your life? I'm not sure I have an answer. I don't think of myself that way. Mm. I think of myself in more centrist, self-centered, selfish ways. <laughs> and that is... What do I want to do? Right. And I do mostly within with some restrictions. I do what I feel like doing, and that is develop. I've always developed my career. I do have a family. I have a husband for, for 40 years. Wow. So, and we have grown children, yeah. four children. So, we have a very close knit family. But It was never my purpose in life. Even though I'm a good parent and my husband is a good parent and we have a good marriage, a love marriage, that has never been the purpose. The purpose was for me to be the best that I can be Mm -hmm. and then it's project towards the next people around me and gets bigger. So it goes in maybe concentric circles right. or ebbing circles. They are different, concerti- <laughs> but it then develops. What, what attracts me is to do interesting things, so I never stop learning. For example, yeah. I speak French, but not very well. So in these past six years, I, I go to... Paris, I go to school, but also I do online exercises every single day. Yesterday, this week, I would say I have had my very first something that I never even thought I was going to do Mm -hmm. because I always say that if there's life after life, I want to come back as a comedian. (laughs) And I I always... I'm a, I'm a very serious speaker. I do a lot of public speaking, but on very serious issues, as we are going to discuss shortly. Right. But we have a big a, a party uh, tomorrow night, and we were assigned roles, and I was assigned the role of telling jokes. I said, <laughs> oh my God, I, the last person I said to the host, you can't do this to me. He says, no, oh, no, you could do that. And I, I was shocked. So I prepared, I actually prepared a skit. I tested it on Tuesday with my Toastmasters group, which is another thing I always learn, study. And I, uh, and I got a lot of laughters. So last night I was at a small party of about 14 people. Right. And I felt good, and I kind of it came in a conversation that this is what I'm doing it's coming Saturday. Yeah. And a woman said, do you want to test it or not? And I said, okay, these are good strangers. <laughs> I would really take courage. And what I wanted to do in life is do the things that are uncomfortable, that take incredible courage. I can fall off my face. I did this. And it went extremely well. Wow. So everybody was laughing so hard. <laughs> so now I'm really ready to present tomorrow night something yeah. new that I don't have to wait for life after life. I'm going to do my first stand-up tomorrow night, <laughs> five-minute skit. So here we are. Who knows what's coming next in my life? I keep surprising myself. Mm, wow.
0: That's beautiful. And that's life. That's life being life.
2: Yeah.
0: And you're flowing with it. That's so wonderful.
2: Yes. I, I, I try not to say no to life. Yes. Opportunities, things that come my way that I think are so, I, I, it's so easy to say no, no. Oh, it's not for me. or I don't do that. Or I'm not comfortable. It's outside my comfort zone. Oh, give it, give it on to me on what's outside my comfort zone and I will see whether it works for me. All
0: right. At least try. I tell you. Yeah. That is so wonderful. What a great message. So let's talk about the subject in your book, The Third Daughter. What was the inspiration to write the novel? And can you give us
2: a brief summary of what is in the book? Okay, there are two questions that the, I'll start with the easy, short one, and that is, what is the book about? Right. It is set, the third daughter is set in Buenos Aires in the late 1800s. It's a story of a young woman lured from Russia, from the shtetl, shtetl being a village, very poor Jewish village, with the false promise of marriage and then forced into prostitution in Buenos Aires. And that is the story, how she fights the trafficker unions, union and try to bring them down, how she survives and uh, remains hopeful and actually remains religious. You and I talked about religion. So that's one of my, the form in which I envy those who have faith. Now, back to the first question, what inspired me to write a particular story? And it comes from different directions. I will try to summarize. In uh, 1995, I was at the International Women's Conference in Beijing when I heard a Filipina, an aging woman who had been captured during World War II by the Japanese army and like tens of thousands of other young women in the Pacific Rim was put into comfort stations for the sexual comfort of the Japanese soldiers. And this woman decades later, now in her seventies perhaps was trying to seek justice and to seek an apology from the Japanese government, an apology that was not forthcoming. And that woman brought to my attention the whole area of sexual slavery in all its forms. And coming back to New York, since I live in the city, I was able to go to UN sessions that relates to, by the NGO, non-governmental agencies, and to start listening and studying the issue of sex trafficking. Never thinking that I was going to write a novel, I did that more out of my humanitarian heart and interest in all forms of violence against women. Unrelated to all of that, I somehow in the background had heard about sexual slavery of Jewish women lured during that period of time, late 80s, 1800s, early 1900s from Eastern Europe that was plugged by pogroms and um, how it became, they were prostitutes and pimps in South America. I'd even tried to ask about it in 2007. I was at the Jewish library in Buenos Aires and I didn't get any response. Wow. And I wasn't going to look into this at all when in... 2015 I was looking into the short stories, I was going to see Fiddler on the Roof yet again, the show, the play and having grown up in Israel I always knew that Tevye had seven daughters I studied Sholom Aleichem stories in school that was Hebrew literature right. and I always knew he had seven daughters so I thought let me get the book and I found it in English and then later in Hebrew. The short stories the Shalom Alechem wrote, and I started reading those two te- Tavious stories. The way the author had structured those stories were he was supposedly going on a train, traveling on a train in Russia, and different people, characters that he met told him their stories, mostly in monologues occasionally interjected the question, but very rarely. So Tevye, according to that, came on the train and it would say, oh, Mr. Arthur, here you are again. Let me tell you what happened to my next daughter. Mm -hmm. And that's how the stories came about. So I uh, read those. At the beginning, he says he has seven daughters. Then he says he has six daughters and then ended up telling the stories of only five. So, as I live through the book of short stories called The tra- Railroad Stories, I come across another short story called The Man from Buenos Aires. And it's about this sleazy character, a horrible person who's bragging to the author about his riches and his business successes. And he's, he is a businessman all over the world, headquartered in Buenos Aires, but is now traveling in Russia because he's looking for a virtuous Jewish bride. And I immediately know know what knew what it was. He would not reveal to the author, even though he kept probing him. What's your merchandise? What is this that you do? What's what is the business that you say you have the police in your pocket? What is it? And he he kicks on just this chattering guy refuses by the way this short story is now on my website available in my new translation so your listeners can great find it at any rate that is so that story had been written in 1909 I put it down and went to my computer to modern-day Google yeah. and within minutes I was printing out dozens of articles about this story union, which I didn't even know was named Tsvi Zwi Migdal, Z-W-I-M-I-G-D-A-L. And I learned that it was legal and that it operated with impunity for 70 years.
0: Amazing.
2: And from that point on, I was a goner. I had tell I can talk about it more, but basically what was the inspiration? This is what it was. And then I struggled with myself, even as I was starting to write this story, I kept on struggling. And even my husband said, you know, we have all these friends in Argentina. How can you do this to them? And I I I just didn't know what to do. I tried to write the story about the Filipina that I heard about her story that happened in Japan, and it wasn't coming through. And then one day, my mother, my late mother, had been a, an artist in Israel, very successful one. And I have a lot of her paintings, and her fav- my favorite one is one that's called, she named The Tango Dancers. Mm-hmm. And when I pass by my mother's paintings, I very often just touch the corner yeah. because I know that her fingers were on them. They are old paintings. So one day I'm touching this painting of the the tango dancer, and I said, "They're not dancing tango. This is this is a, a pimp, and and his, and a pimp and is a uh, prostitute. Mm. She's sitting, looking away from him. So they're not dancing." And all of a sudden, the me and the way they are dressed, very very Spanish looking. Okay. I said, "This is." This is, this is my story. Wow. So, you know, I say I don't believe in mystical things. I don't believe in messages from the other world. My mother never did, so I would be insulting her memory if I said that she sent me a message because neither one of us believed in those things. But all of a sudden, I felt calmness, this struggle that I had. About telling the story kind of evaporated. Not, never completely, but by far less intense than it had been. And I was much more comfortable just letting the story take its course.
0: Wow. That is incredible when you say, yeah, like not believing mystical things, but, but you never know. <laughs> yeah, like it's a mystery, isn't it? Life, how everything comes together. And because you are somebody who lets life guide you, then it's more likely that you're being guided by the uh, mysterious forces. How is sexual subjugation different from sexual slavery and sex trafficking?
2: They're all part of the same thing. I don't know that one is a subset of the other. Sexual slavery is just as the words are. That's a person who has no freedom to move, to escape, to make choices at all, and are completely subjugated to giving sex services and be used in a sexual way. So that's uh, in a very clear way. That sexual slavery and sexual subjugation can also be, in a bigger way, situations such as what we have seen in a situation like in the Me Too, where men of power use it against people, and women usually. There are very few men and very few trans involved, but it happens, but ba- mainly women, in order to force them to do things. So even though the women may make choices, you've seen the recent film, uh, uh, Bombshell, about what happened in uh, in a network, I think the CBS network, I don't want to say if it's the wrong network, mm-hmm. but... How the women, the gorgeous, gorgeous women, were, made the choices. They wanted to progress in their careers, and they had, in order to do that, they had to give in to the sexual needs and subjugation of the uh, CEO. Right. They could have said no. Right. They had the freedom to walk out. They left to go home every day. Yeah. They were not prisoners as we see it. But their careers, their entire life would have been ruined. The problem with, I mean, that that movie reflects that very well, and I hope that things will definitely continue to change for women because now corporations have taken notice. The problem is that there's a lot of variations of these sexual subjugations for women who are not in position of exposure like that, meaning... A lot of women in the food industry, servicing in diners, in restaurants, waitresses. You have women in the the blue-collar professions, especially if they work in uh, male-dominated environments such as coal mines or in the electronics fields, in the construction field, you will find... That they don't have that yet, that kind of uh, recourse to fight it, but, and they are subjugated to their male bosses right. or male union leaders, uh, all kinds of men of influence. That is subjugation, even though you can say they are free to change jobs, uh, they are free to go home to the family every day. So those are the, the next group that we should take care of. I agree, and that's why we're having this conversation
0: today. I would love to know more. How concerning is sex trafficking in the United States?
2: United States is a beacon of hope for the entire world. There are no people around on the globe that don't want to come and live in the United States. True. Regardless of how maybe their governments and their media demonizes the United States, they all would come in. If you land a plane, say, (laughs) come, hop on, they will all come. True. So... And that is combined with, I uh, mentioned strife and misery and wars in many hot spots around the globe where people are, others live in squalor, they are hungry, whatever. The lure of traffickers to bring, to bring women, to bring them to the United States or to the West. It starts, it's also in the West in general, meaning they want to go to Berlin and Rome and Paris and London just as much. They would take all opportunities to move to the West, but the U.S. is probably still the number one choice. So they're very vulnerable to promises, and even if they get some glimpses of possibly that things are not, that they are taking chances, they hope that this time, it's not like that. That's not going to happen to them. So, in the United States, two-thirds of sex workers are basically enslaved, lured from abroad, not knowing exactly what was 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 going to happen. Right. And they have their passports confiscated, and they are put in places where, they don't they don't know how to leave they they can't walk out to the street they don't speak the language they they don't know what's around them and they cannot trust the police because in their home countries their police is not to be trusted yeah. so they don't trust to go to the police they don't know we have laws here that would protect them and organizations and social services that will not immediately deport them, even though that's definitely a possibility as well. The other one-third are U.S. grown, meaning they were born and raised in the U.S. And that is a totally different demographic group in terms of what happens to them and how they get recruited. Do you know what's the recruitment age for U.S. born into prostitution? No, no. No. Twelve to fourteen years old. Right. Which means that they are in school. They are under our protection. They we have chances to help these children. And there's no age of consent before eighteen years old. There's no consent that is legal for a minor. To sell himself or herself for sex that would, and that would benefit a third party so that it's illegal no matter what. It, and it's trafficking is not tra- moving people from across state lines. It is any selling of another person for sex. There is no age of consent. For under eighteen year olds, there's no legal consent for selling humans for sex. So a kid under eighteen cannot agree to be trafficked, to be sold for sex services, when another third party then gains the profits of it or any favors out of it. Meaning a parent who would allow the landlord to have their way with the child so that they can not, so they can waive the rent. That's trafficking. It's not transferring youth across state lines. The age of entry into trafficking in the U.S. is only 12 to 14 which means that they are in schools. They are under our supervision and our care, and we can offer programs for these children who are vulnerable. Who are they? Teachers know who they are. The schools know who they are. We have pockets of populations in certain zip code areas that we know are particularly vulnerable to recruitment. Recruitment of 12 to 14 year olds happens, yes, online, but it happens in the school yard because there are gangs. It happens in the mall. It happens in the school bus stop. Wow. But I mentioned online. Children have been rescued when asked it turns out the research shows that until 2015, the first contact with their trafficker, their recruiter, happened in person. As I mentioned, in those various places where, where people, traffickers can prey on children from the schoolyard to the mall, mall. But since 2015, the first contact happened online, which means that traffickers reach the children in their own homes. Right. Until about a decade ago, I remember 10 years ago, as, as parents and grandparents were told to watch for the children's emails and give uh, a kind of permission to only a certain pre screen group of people, but that is no longer true for emails because every app and every, every game has its own chat and messaging system. You can't control all of those communications channels. The only way is to educate the children, and they are resources. There are now programs. I know that Florida has one. ProtectNow.org has a fantastic program in California that's now moving into Nevada as well. There are many programs around the country, not enough, but that reach children as young as 10 to start teaching them to be weary on one hand, but you still want them to be friendly. They want them, but they have to learn how not to fall to certain schemes. Right. They also teach children to watch right in their own school. For example, let's say a girl who comes from a poor family, there's a a crisis, you know that things are not going well, and all of a sudden she has a very expensive iPhone, Mm. And maybe she says that she, she tells everybody how she has an older boyfriend who takes her to clubs and he shows her things and he really, she's, you know, she's been the most unpopular girl and now she's the one who gets to go places. And kids, teenagers, are being taught now in school. To use that observation, not in a judgmental, bitchy way, as girls in that age can be really horrible, but rather in a compassionate way and through a very specific protocol. Who, which of the teachers they should approach with that? What does the teacher do about it? How do those students get together and do a con- have a conversation among themselves and with that particular child about what is going on. So there are ways to deal with that and save those children one by one. So that's a very different population from the usually adult, meaning at least they are 17, 18 years old, to come from abroad and are being subjugated here in the United States. So that's, and that's, uh, as you saw on my website, there's quite a lot to learn about that.
0: Oh, yes, yeah. In a way, uh, there are different kinds of trafficking. You just mentioned uh, those local trafficking that could happen in our homes, uh, schools, also commercial sexual trafficking, then uh, familiar trafficking. Is local trafficking and familiar trafficking
2: the same? Yeah I wouldn't, I wouldn't call the word local because you I would only I would differentiate between US born and and foreign born uh, people who are trafficked
0: Okay that's the difference then okay
2: Yes not local because they can for example we have just had Super Bowl last week last weekend in all of the major sports events there is a spike in the demand for sexual services and in flying the traffickers with their merchandise to respond to this. Yeah, There was a Super Bowl just last weekend. And as in all major sporting events, there is an increase in the demand. And with that spike... In, coming, flying the traffickers with their merchandise to respond to this demand. So that this is case of we, whether these people are being trafficked are US born or foreign born, that is not the, the, what matters here. What matters here is to educate the demand side and that is something that we the audience don't see very well we don't see we don't know about it but many many of those admired players and owners of teams and people who are involved on that on that end do public service announcements that when we see the commercials on our end, on TV at home, they run those PA announcements and tell the public there, the, the spectators, who are mostly men, that regardless of these women's behavior and the way they dress and how they solicit, that there is a third party who actually benefits, who actually takes the money, and that these women are not free. They are forced to act and behave this way. So that we see that kind of education that is very important to continue. This is just the beginning of educating the market. And there has been proven results in terms of reduction in the demand. Not enough, definitely not enough.
0: I really like the way you talked in that article about changing focus and then trying to follow the Swedish model more and focus on addressing the demand.
2: Okay, my my education is actually in economics, even though I'm an author. I look at the world of specifically this issue as supply, suppliers and demand right, right the supply side as long as this this huge misery and strife and poverty around the globe and misery right here in the united states you will have an unending supply and therefore you will have an as long as as long as they are not being punished enough, the traffickers will have huge profits to be made by recruiting those unhappy people. Right. It is the demand side that drives the entire sex industry, and very specifically, it's men who pay for sex. Mm. Again, they are they have really minor of any other gender, it is a man against women. But also, very interestingly, the majority of men who pay for sex are white, while the majority of women who are subjugated are women of color. So this is not just a male, female, it's also a race issue that is not being addressed enough and should be addressed a lot better. And women of color, I'm including all the Asian women, of course, that are consider themselves women of color. So it's a supply, it's a demand side, and the demand side are those men who make these women being enslaved because they are willing to pay. And They are the ones who are most vulnerable, actually. These men are most vulnerable if we address them directly. Meaning no man wants to come home and tell his wife that he was fired from his job Mm. because he used the conference last night where he was. He went to use this room to entertain a prostitute. Nor do you know that Uh. what's the time? The peak time of the day when men buy sex online. No, I'm not talking pornography. I'm talking make arrangements for sexual encounters. I wouldn't know. Two p.m. Hmm.
0: Why afternoon?
2: Meaning they're at work. Uh. They're at work. They're using corporate. They're using the computers wow. from their company. Well, companies now have policies in place against using any of the company's resources, be it computers, time away from the, and on conferences, trucks, facilities of any form. There is an organization called bestproject.org and that is business ag- business ending sex trafficking. And they have on their website the uh, wording, a few pages that every human resource com- every human resource director can put into the company's manual, whether it's a three pay- a three people employee or thirty thousand people employee, and be very specific about that. So I'm talking back about companies now working against that, but also the vulnerability of these men who buy sex. They don't want to be found. They don't want to be... Exposed. To be fired. Yeah. And interestingly enough, the unions are now backing the employers. So an employee who breaks this particular regulation would not find the union fighting for his job, which is very, very promising. Yeah the other thing is when there are raids on brothers, for example usually or on street corners when they congregate usually the prostitutes are arrested but what about the johns why are they being let loose right now more and more they are going up, they are being arrested and if they are arrested they their names are now public record and that goes on the internet and then and it's not worth it for them. So we are talking about 2 prong type of dealing with 2 prong weapons to deal with the demand side. One is education, as I mentioned, to show these men the humanity of these women and to teach them that these women are enslaved, right. they are not free, And the other one is the threat of exposure. Yeah. um. So we can, now the Swedish model that you mentioned takes it all the way to legally consider that if these women are all victims, regardless of how these women work, they are victims of society, they are victims of psychological traumas, they are victims of Poverty. Whatever they are victims of, they are victims, and therefore, according to Swedish law, the men are rapists, and they are then tried as rapists. Wow. that is hard for our society to take, yet, yeah. and I understand. But I think that there is a big, big road for us to take to mm. to take the other two approaches I mentioned. And educate in order to do that. And the other side is to start helping the victims and see them as victims rather than look down on the prostitutes and not wanting to get involved with them. Is this is what my novel does? Is when you read the third daughter and you get to know the humanity of Batya and. I can tell you, reviewers are absolutely raving about her character. And they, it, she stays with them for days after. And that is what I want to, them to take with them, my, my readers, towards understanding that the, these women are victims and they are ways to help them. And that's what we should all continue to do.
0: Yeah. What a wonderful job. Thank you so much, Talia, for your work. This is not just a political issue, race issue, but a health issue.
2: Exactly. Do you know the kids, and I mentioned to you in schools, they when they get a phone number for the hotline, mm. the hotline is to the health department mm. because prostitution is not a legal issue. It is a health issue. Right. And in uh, about some of my support was from uh, the uh, Boston Women's, uh, Women's Hospital. That was who supported me and gave me the health information when I uh, wrote the novel. It was not there were no law law enforcement.
0: Oh, interesting.
2: Uh, books involved. This is all health issue. How interesting. Yeah, that's what I
0: thought when I approached you on on the subject. Uh, Do you have the number, the National Human Trafficking Hotline? If you don't, I have it here and I can disclose it.
2: Yes, please do.
0: Texting the National Human Trafficking Hotline. It's help, the word help to 233733. Be free. Or you also can call 1-888-373-7888. Yes, thank you. Thank you. How can we find more information about you, what you do, your books, and future projects?
2: My website has everything, including my book tour where you can all come. I I speak to many, many groups very often on my website, www.taliacarner.com. That is T-A-L-I-A-C-A-R-N as in N-C-E-R.com. You can read the first chapter of all of my novels, including The Third Daughter, you can listen to this interview one day and others as well. And you can read the short story if you would like. I mentioned the man from Buenos Aires, but most importantly, perhaps, is go to the, the activism page of what can you do to take action against sex trafficking. And you can learn a lot and there are a lot of links into local groups or you can find out national groups that has local chapters and you can do s- something. There's a lot, there are about 3,000 groups around the United States who deal with anti-sex trafficking. So you can find ways to learn and to work and contribute to anti-sex trafficking in your own backyard. Right.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Talia. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye for now. Okay, bye.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn more about Talia Karner, please visit her website at www.taliakarner.com.